Uh, there's a well-known missionary in history, uh, Henry Martin, uh, who was a, a missionary for a, for a short time because his life was not long. Uh, he was a missionary in India, for, then for a while in Persia, now, which is now Iraq. Um, he was captivated in his final year at Cambridge in England uh, as, as a student by the writings of David Brainerd, who was uh, an American missionary, destined, he was, was going to be the son of law, the son-in-law of Jonathan Edwards, but died young. And he left a journal with, John, with Jonathan Edwards published, and, and he just endured real hardships and had great fruit taking the gospel to people who, to whom it was utterly strange, not just new in its content, but it was from a completely foreign culture, and Brainerd worked among the American Indians. Um, great journal to read, by the way, um, if you are so inclined. It's, uh, it is uh, widely available. But Henry Martin was reading David Brainerd's journals, and he experienced a total paradigm shift. Uh, he had claimed earlier, well, you know, I want, I'm a Christian, but I could never, you know, give up my life and the things that I'm familiar with for foreign missionary service. That's just not my call. He'd been quite outward, out, outspoken about that. And as he read Brainerd's journal and pondered on the scriptures, he became overwhelmed by this sense that, I need to leave behind everything. I need to be a missionary to people who have not heard the gospel before. And this young man who had claimed he could never be poor for Christ's sake now felt compelled to forsake a prestigious career in order to become a missionary himself. He wrote this in his journal. I almost think that to be prevented from going among the heathen as a missionary would break my heart. I feel pressed in spirit to do something for God. I have hitherto lived to little purpose, more like a clod than a servant of God. Now let me burn out for God. Uh, there's a story that I read uh, some, some time back. I wish I could tell you where I found it, but I can't, I can't find the book that I read it in, which describes Henry Martin, who had fallen in love with a young lady named Lydia, and, you know, sought her. At first, he was uh, conflicted about his attraction to her because he thought, I'm called to be a missionary. But then he thought, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could go to the heathen and speak the gospel as man and wife? And so he, knowing her regard for him, which was you know, very loving and, and uh, reciprocal to his own, he asked her hand in marriage and she turned him down uh, because she could not imagine going to the mission field as he was going. Uh, so the, 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 the relationship was left, was left somewhat open-ended. There was hope that he might go for a time, return, perhaps marry her upon his return. But there's a story told of him contemplating the whole situation and standing on a beach looking out over the ocean, thinking of going over that ocean to missionary service, and he took a stick and drew in the sand 
a little picture of, of the, the family that he imagined. He himself married to this woman Lydia and the children that they might have. And he stood and looked at it. And then he took his foot and wiped out the picture. And, and it was his way of, of confirming that I am called by God whatever it costs. I'm leaving it behind. Um, and off he went to missionary service. Never saw Lydia again. He was in India for a while, then went to Persia, partly for his health, but also to continue to preach the gospel to a different uh, unreached group. And he died of tuberculosis, tuberculosis at the age of 31. So from an earthly perspective, very sad. From a heavenly perspective, it's the story of this man whose whole system of values, his whole, whole system of what was important in his life was changed by the Holy Spirit's conviction on what he ought to do with his life. In that context, turn with me to Psalm 115. Um, Christopher already read the, the opening lines. Um, read again with me the cry of the psalmist. Um, it's always instructive to meditate on the fact that when we pray, our prayers are to be what God himself wants. We're not trying to change God's mind. We're not trying to get him to accede to our wishes, although we are certainly to present our desires before him, but we're submitting to him. And the psalmist is, this is God's word, but it's also the psalmist praying. It's God's word expressing God's truth, and it is the psalmist praying that truth. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us. But to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. And then he goes on and he sets Israel in opposition to those uh, idolatrous tribes. He says, O Israel, trust in the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the covenant God of Israel. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And he goes on to talk about the Lord's blessings and guidance to his people. But there's this contrast here between the nations who have idols and say to Israel, where's your God? And our God is in the heavens. And he tells Israel, our God is in the heavens, even though we're surrounded by nations who have these idols. Our God is in the heavens. Trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. Um, we most naturally read this in our current context. We think of, you know, sort of this ancient pagan idolatry making statues, and it seems so foolish, and it seems 
is if the, con- the, the, uh, the psalmist is scorning this practice. Ah, oh, you make these statues. They can't hear. They can't talk. They can't walk. And how can you think there's a God in there? What's wrong with you people? And there's undoubtedly something of that. But if we put ourselves back in the context of the times, what you have to realize is that Israel was the oddball in the cultures around them. They were the ones who didn't have a God that they could see, a God that they could, in some measure, have contact, physical contact with. And if you read some of the writings and some of the histories of pagan nations of of antiquity, these people, yes, they're idolatrous, but they're not stupid. Um, It really isn't quite accurate to say that they just thought their god was wood and stone. They had had these ideas about, well, if they made the image, their god would somehow be present there. But they, they had bigger ideas than that their god was just this inanimate object. They weren't that illogical, irrational in their beliefs. They thought that it was necessary to have an image to help you have some physical connection to your god and then whoever this mysterious god out there was, different names for him, different nations having different gods, but that god would somehow honor you and meet with you in that idol. It wasn't so much that they thought that the idol was the god itself. Like I said, they weren't they weren't they were wicked and idolatrous, but they weren't that stupid. Um, and the the psalmist is saying something like this. We don't have images because our God is not someone who just kind of comes and stays with us. Um, he is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Uh, keep your finger in Psalm 115. Turn back to the book of Daniel. I'm sorry, ahead to the book of Daniel. Kind of forget where I am for a second. Um, and look at what Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar um, when he is. Well, first of all, look at some of the responses of of the the quote-unquote wise men of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. He's had a dream. We won't read the whole um, episode here. But the, the Chaldeans, the wise men of Babylon, are told by the dream or by the king, I've had a dream. I want you to tell me what the dream is, and I want you to tell me what it means. And they say, well, sure, tell us what the dream. We'll, we'll come up with a meaning. No, 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 says King Nebuchadnezzar. Tell me what I dreamed. Oh, well, that's different. And the Chaldeans, I'm, now I'm reading the text from verse 10 of chapter 2. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests. And there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. The gods don't live here. We can't get to them. We can't talk to them. Now, it's 
couldn't be any clearer that the cultures all around Israel, including the Babylonians, had images. But these images represented and helped them feel like they were connecting to their God. But they knew they can't tell us anything. Well, so Nebuchadnezzar goes on a rampage, starts killing the wise men. Daniel, they come to Daniel. Daniel asks what's going on, gets the story, asks for time. And he says, as the secret is revealed, uh, turn over to verse 20 of chapter 2, and you can just hear Psalm 115 being echoed here. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the season. He, re- he removes the kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might, and now have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men. Uh, We'll skip down a little bit, and he appears before... uh, The king who asks him in verse 26, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel says, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, astrologers, magicians, soothsayers cannot declare to the king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these, and he tells him, what the dream was, and our business here isn't to go on with the story of Daniel, so we'll you know, read that for yourselves. Great account if you haven't read it recently. It, it bears uh, meditation on. But he's very careful to tell the king, my God in heaven, you're, oh, the Chaldeans were right. I, you, know, you can't get to the gods, even through your idols. But my God reveals things. He is, if he sees fit, he reveals things, and he has revealed this to me. It's not me, king. Don't act as if I have done this with my own wisdom. My God has revealed this to me. Now, think for a moment of the contrast between the idolaters of Babylon and of Psalm 115, who are making gods that don't walk, talk, hear, speak, do any of that stuff. And yet their worshipers think that this is their way of connecting to the God. Here's Daniel. Without this method, this device to be connected to the God who is in heaven, and the God who is in heaven reveals himself to Daniel without this intermediary device, this thing to be visibly worshipped. Who speaks for God here in the book of Daniel? Oh, it's Daniel. It is the living man, Daniel. And this is the contrast, I think, that's being set up in Psalm 115. When the nations say, where is your God? They may be scorning Israel. What's wrong with you Jews? You know, why don't you have a God here like we do? And, and the Jews say, no, 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 our God is in the heaven There may be some scorn there, but I also think that the ancient cultures are looking at Israel and thinking, 
What's wrong with you guys? Don't you get it? Gods have to be appealed to through these idols. And you're not doing that. How do you expect to ever connect to a God? What's wrong with you? You don't have any images. How can you have a God if you don't have any images? And yes, there may be some scorn and enmity there, no doubt. But I think it's also clear from the way the question is asked, they're, they're gen- they genuinely don't understand. They genuinely think, Israel, you need this idol thing. You need this image. If you're going to get to your God, you've got to have the intermediary device. That's what people do. That's the paradigm of all the cultures around. And the answer of Israel is not just, no, we don't have an image, but we don't have dead images. We don't have lifeless, inanimate images. In fact, nations who are questioning us, we do have images. What do, I, what do you mean? Are you accusing Israel of idolatry? No. What did God say when he created man? Male and female, he created them in the image of God. The people which God created bear his image. And um, now that's why, I think, God takes pains to tell his people in, in, the, in uh, the, the laws. He gives it on the stones at Exodus uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a graven image, a carved image, because you're, you, there's, I've created images, and you are perverting and twisting and misusing my cre- creation, my created order, to make false images Instead, to try to take the place of the true and living images which I created to be my representatives on the earth. Because that's what's going on. The other nations are saying, we need a representative of God. I need a representative of God in my, on my little altar in my house. Or I need a representative of God in my temple. No, you have a representative of God. They are image bearers created in the image of God. Now, they're not to be worshipped, but they are the representatives of God. Uh, And the the Bible's full of the language of imagery. I'll just throw a few examples at you. I already talked about Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to come back to Genesis chapter 1 in a minute. I'm finding the more I read my Bible, the less I can do it without constantly going back to God's original purposes in creation. It's just amazing. Um, But we are not to have images. Why? Because there are appropriate images. There are image bearers, living image bearers created on the earth. Um, Adam and Eve, you were image bearers and you were going to have offspring which are in your likeness, after your kind, after your likeness. Um, we look forward, we jump in, go through the whole history of Israel, and the Messiah comes and he dies to redeem these fallen, sinful images, these fallen, sinful image bearers. And then they are told things like this in Romans chapter 8, uh, whom he foreknew, 
He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Oh, the goal, the reason God is forgiving us and redeeming us and bringing us into fellowship with him is to conform us so that we will be the images that we, will, that we were intended to be. Images. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 talks about um, the ultimate end to which we are heading. In chapter 15, uh, we talk about having borne the image of the, of the first man who was of the earth in verse 47. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 47. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. And that image of the heavenly man is, according to Hebrews chapter 1, the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. Again, there's the word image. Jesus is the perfect representation as a man of the God who is spirit and eternal, is not temporal in any way. Um, In the words of the Westminster Confession, Uh, What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He's not a man. But Jesus became a man. Jesus, God himself, became the image. Adam was originally chartered, originally created and originally chartered to be that image. And he failed. Um... So this language of being images, it's, it's uh, integral to what it means to be human, to be one of God's created images, to be a soul in this creation is to be an image bearer. Now when we read uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and we see this fleshed out a little bit in, in the original creation, we find that there are two different things that we can say about the idea of man being the image of God, being created in his image. Uh, One, which I think is most intuitive and most obvious to us as we read, is that it is descriptive. It is simply telling us what God did. Um, We are all created in the image of God, believer and unbeliever alike. If you except that Adam and Eve were in the image of God and all of their progeny are in their likeness, believer and unbeliever alike reflect God either well or badly. And there's the rub. Nobody has stopped being an image bearer. What's happened because of sin is that we have abused and perverted and fulfilled our purpose badly. So we're all, all humans, walk down the street, everybody you see, they're all image bearers. But the question is, do they bear God's image well or badly or somewhere in between? And then it, it gets kind of complicated in our experience because there are people 
who trust the living and the true God, who have come to him and been joined in fellowship with him through faith, and they still sin. I do. And, and then there's other people who do not believe in the, in the salvation that, Jesus, excuse me, that Jesus offers at all, and they do things that, that are good and kind and compassionate. Hospitals are founded. Charities are, are, are carried out. Um, so there's, there's, in fits and starts, you might say, humanity, some people are just wholly given over to wickedness. Others, even though they are estranged from God, have some remnant of good impulse in, in them, and they, and they sometimes show his image beautifully, but in isolation, not as a whole purpose and characteristic of life. So, you know, to be in the, in the image of God is just descriptive. That's what human beings are. And you can see that in imperfectly, in messed up ways, uh, done badly, but you can see bits and pieces of it. But it's also, I've said it's descriptive, it is also prescriptive. What do I mean by that? When Adam and Eve were created, they were not just told that they happened to be in the image of God. They were told that because you were created in the image of God, you are invested with the purpose of consciously, deliberately, obediently displaying God's image in this material world that he has created. Uh, This is where we get back to Genesis chapter 1. In Verse, verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, I think he's elaborating here. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God intended these image bearers to be rulers, not tyrants, but stewards, his representatives, to administer his will on his creation. So he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. We often talk about the perfections of the earth before sin came great thing to contemplate and yet it needed subduing man had work to do fill the earth with image bearers like yourself subdue the earth turn turn it to good use work my will in the earth fill it subdue it have dominion rule over it and then he talks about having giving him giving him uh, food from every Tree, And then we get into chapter 2, and as the account goes on and the garden is described, we find in verse 15 that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend, to work it, to take care of it, to cultivate it, our synonyms for tending it, and to keep it, to protect it um, in ancient English, even, even uh, a keep is an archaic word for a fortress. 
Man was to keep, to defend, to fortify the earth against what? Well, the earth was perfect. What could he possibly need to defend it against? Well, we find out that in God's plan, in his sovereignty, in his creation, before there was a fall, there was evil in the garden in the person of the serpent. And Adam's job, not just his description, his job as God's image bearer was you are taking care of the garden. You are going to have dominion over the earth. You're going to fill it, subdue it, and it starts here. Cultivate the garden and defend it. And we know the story of Eve's fall. Um, Part of the story that we often overlook is that it's, it's an argument from silence. But should Adam have been doing something to defend God's garden so that that confrontation between Adam and Eve shouldn't have taken place, morally speaking, in God's perfect sovereignty, of course, it had to take place. But should, in a moral sense, Adam have been defending his wife somehow from the serpent? And we don't know the answer to to the question. It's a little bit speculative. But we do know that man had a purpose, and it involved keeping the garden, being joined to his wife, defending them and their home for the sake of God's glory. That's what it was what it meant to be in God's image. So it is both descriptive and prescriptive, this idea of being an image of God. Now, after the fall, which we can say a lot about the fall, but after the fall, you have the question of, oh, Eve has failed to trust God. Instead of trusting and following his word, she followed her own desires. She ate fruit that was forbidden to her, which I would contend the the foundation of the problem was less the eating of the fruit than the failure to trust God's word and to esteem his wisdom and his instruction above her own. Um, You can meditate on that for yourself. But once the fall happens... Death has come. The image bearers are cast out of the garden. Uh, If you read theologians about the implications of the fall, you'll see all manner of degrees talked about as far as what happened to man in terms of being the image bearer. Some theologians will say, oh, man's just not an image bearer anymore. I don't think that bears out. Uh, Otherwise, Jesus would not have come as a man, but that's a longer discussion. Most orthodox theologians through the ages have have said something like, in one degree or another, the image is ruined, but not ruined so that it doesn't exist anymore, ruined so that it is perverted and twisted and misused and and, uh, it distorts God's image. Um, So Jesus Christ came, as we've already said, from Hebrew, in Hebrews chapter 1, it tells us that he was the express image of God, the brightness of his glory, and he came, we know, and in his perfect display, his perfect, if you'll allow me to use it as a verb, his imaging of his father, 
He gave himself up utterly for ruined people who had no worth in themselves at all, no hope at all to be regarded with any favor by the Creator, but just because that's what God is like. He loves justice, but he loves mercy. And he won't sacrifice ultimately one for the other. And so his son comes and as his perfect image executes or accepts upon himself the execution of justice so that he might display mercy to to those who will trust him. And this trust is what becomes the image of God. Uh, the, The image bearers, it becomes them to trust the living and the true God. And we do that now by trusting the Savior, Jesus Christ. As we trust him, the most urgent need and the thing we talk about a lot as the gospel of Jesus Christ is his atoning, justifying, forgiving death and his triumph over death, his resurrection on our behalf, all of this on our behalf. It is a wonderful Wonderful gospel to be offered forgiveness by the Lord Jesus Christ. I would say that we sometimes concentrate so much on the wonder and the goodness of his forgiveness that we forget that God's sending of Jesus to be his perfect image, the most urgent need that he was addressing was our need of forgiveness, the need of our restoration to fellowship with the living and the true God. But remember what Romans, what we just read that Romans 8.29 said, he's, he's saving us so that we may be conformed to the image of his son. He's uh, saying in the words of uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 that we are being saved so that we will show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So he's not only forgiving us, although that is primary and foundational. We cannot earn that forgiveness and that fellowship with God in any way, but out of it springs a whole new life because the Holy Spirit works in us and recreates in us Progressively, not all at once, but he is working to create in us a restored, redeemed, renewed image of God. That's why we're being saved. We're not just escaping judgment. We are being saved, and as we escape judgment, we're being remade into his image. And in order to do that, uh, theologians have talked about the order of affections. Go back to, the, to Eve. In the garden, what did Eve do? She had a choice before her as she, as she spoke to the serpent, and she knew what God had said. And she knew, after speaking to the serpent, what she desired. And it said she saw the fruit, which had been forbidden. And, it was, and this is true. This is not a lie. The fruit was beautiful to the eye, good for food, and desirable to make one wise. That wasn't false. But she took it out of 
its ordained order. God said no. And to reflect God's image, what Eve was supposed to do is say, I trust, if I'm confronted with a choice between here's my desire, here's what God desires for me, I choose God's desire every time. Really, when we think about it, isn't it just insane not to? Isn't it just crazy, irrational to say, oh, I think I know better than God does. And yet we do it every day. And it's what Eve did. And it cast mankind into a a state of sin and misery, which we have to be delivered from by a redeemer, the redeemer, Jesus Christ. But that choice is being made over and over and over every day, and it is a choice of order. What's going to come first, my desire or God's? Put God's desire first. Love what God loves. Hate what God hates. On one level, it's exceedingly simple. We have this extensive treatise called the Bible, which not only tells us what is true in what Jesus Christ did for us and how we may be saved by trusting his atoning death, burial, and resurrection, it also tells us all sorts of things about the character of God. And we're just supposed to be like that. And when I say it so simply, it's, it, it, it almost sounds ridiculous. Like, well, well, why don't we just do that then? Well, because we're sinners. Because our affections are all disordered. And one of the fundamental things that the restoration of the image of God in me and in God's redeemed people means is the... the re- the reestablishment of appropriately ordered affections. I'm just going to run really quickly through a bunch of examples. Um, we won't even turn there. I'll just make some biblical references to them, and you can you know, jot them down if you want, read them later. But think how often things in Scripture are said and the implication of what is being portrayed has to do with some Thing being weighed, which is more important? Um, Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. That's Hebrews 11. What did Moses do? He looked at the reproach of Christ. Oh, but I could have all the riches of Egypt. I'll take this, please. He esteemed, it's a values question. He ordered his priority. He chose to value and esteem what God esteems rather than what he would naturally esteem. When the apostles, both in Acts 4 and 5, there's different expressions of it. When they're confronted by the the Jewish council and said, stop preaching this Jesus guy. Stop preaching in his name. You're bringing all sorts of accusation against us, which was true. They were calling calling those men the murderers of Jesus. Stop it. And there's a couple of different ways that it's said, but the the fundamental thought there, and this is uh, exactly how it's said in chapter 5, we ought to obey God rather than man. I'm going to esteem God's word. I'm going to subjugate man's word. I'm choosing which is more important. Um, We are redeemed. Not by corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. It's a go to the average man on the st- street and ask him, "How valuable is the blood of Christ?" 
and if they unless you happen to by chance run into a biblical Christian, they're going to go, what do you that question doesn't even make sense to me. But the Bible says the blood of Christ is precious and anything that can be compared to it or that you might be tempted to think of yourself as redeemable by, it's it's hopeless. There was a values issue there. We already talked in Genesis 3 about how Eve esteemed her desires, put her desires above God's. Uh, Paul did exactly the opposite in, in Philippians chapter 3. You may, maybe you know the passage I'm, I'm about to say. I count all things loss that I may gain Christ. Oh, it's an order of affections issue. What am I going to love? What am I going to despise? I'm going to despise the things that don't last. I'm going to hang on to the things that are forever. Um, In a negative sense, in Hebrews chapter 10, 29, it talks about people who have apostated. A whole discussion to be had about the meaning of Hebrews 10, 29. Who, Who exactly is it talking about and how are we to understand it? But it's talking about people who have fallen away from faith and cannot be renewed to repentance And the reason given there as it describes these people is that they have esteemed the blood of the covenant, a common thing, and have trampled on the precious blood. They have despised what is precious, and they have pursued what is despicable. Their their affections did not change, regardless of their original profession. We're talking about people who profess to be Christians. Romans one twenty five. what's the fundamental error that's of, of fallen mankind? They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. It's all about the order of affections. God knows what's most important and tells us what we should value, and we keep valuing things in the wrong order. Caiaphas, when the question of, gee, what are we going to do about this Jesus guy as he preaches before his death? Uh, what did he say? It is better that, it is better, let's elevate that thing. It's better to kill this guy rather than endanger the nation as we understand endangerment. Uh, the actual text, better that one man should die than that the nation should perish, Caiaphas said in, in John eleven fifty. It was a values question. He Simply, he knew the claims. He was around for the reports of the new miracle, maybe miracles, maybe saw them with his own eyes. I'm not buying it. I have values, and I'm holding my values up above this guy who claims to be the Messiah. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Set your mind in Colossians chapter 3, on, not on earthly things, but on things above. It's all a matter of ordering things. Uh, one definition of sin is choosing a good thing, but valuing it above a better thing. You do know that because the creation was good, God made everything good. But there's nothing that's inherently evil. What is evil is the corruption of the good things. 
do a mental exercise, do a mental experiment, try to, try to find a thing that is evil inherently. And I think what you'll find is everything you can think of is evil because it corrupts something, disorders something good. Adulterers value an image bearer, but they value them above the one that God has given them in a covenant relationship. Thieves value material things. Material things aren't evil unless you value them above things like truth and goodness and obedience to God. Everything, every way that we can sin involves us disordering God's order. And we are the most urgent need is to be reconciled to God in Christ in his forgiving death, burial, and resurrection. But then we are also to understand that that forgiveness, that restoration, leads us to a renewed humanity, a renewed image-bearing in which we bear witness to him. It's an immense and glorious call. It's a bigger call than simply to be rescued from condemnation. To be rescued from condemnation is a beautiful and good thing, and it is it, it keeps coming up, and we have to keep talking about it because it is so urgent. You can't do the rest of that until that happens. And even once that happens, all of the rest of the restoration that God intends for his people and for his creation depend upon the work of the Holy Spirit. We're helpless to do it ourselves. Um, so we are to trust the person and the work of Christ. But we're not just trusting the work to save us. We're trusting the person. We're trusting Jesus. And, if, and to trust his work for forgiveness, but not trust who he is so that we imitate him, as Paul, by the way, commanded believers to do. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And you do recognize that the word imitate and image come right from the same roots. So the different forms of the same idea. Are we going to strive to order our affections, to take up this great purpose, this great call to, as forgiven believers, not in order to become forgiven, not in order to merit God's favor, but as forgiven believers, will we live in such a way as to love what God loves in proportion as he loves? It affects our reading of the Bible. When we read the Bible, you know, we talk about favorite verses or favorite doctrines. We have no business doing that. What we're supposed to esteem as we interpret the Bible, emphasize what the Bible emphasize, emphasizes. Read the whole thing. Get to know the whole thing. It's the work of a lifetime. It's all about ordering our affections after the image of God. What value do I place on my own cares, desires, goals, presuppositions? Unless I have arrived at complete maturity, I must always, it's the, my manner of life, my ongoing habit, to be striving to reorder my affections. And therefore, my actions, my witness, my work, worship, pursuits, loves, pleasures, goals, I am always working to be more clo closely in accord with God's own estimation of what is good, what is less good, what is wicked. May God help me, may God help us all as we endeavor in 
faith as redeemed believers in the cross of Jesus Christ to be restored to his image. We're going to close in prayer. And then I'll read a benediction from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Would you stand with me and let's, let's end in prayer.